The Spin-Off Podcast Network. When the Facts Change is brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network in partnership with Kiwi Bank. The bank for Kiwi looking to get ahead in business and in life. A bank that delivers expertise and banking know-how, smart advice for business owners wanting to invest, grow their business or diversify. A bank that adapts with technology through the lens of its people and customers. It is a bank with heart that is driven by its purpose. Kiwi making Kiwi better off. Tēnā koutou katoa, hello and welcome to this special Budget Day crossover episode of When the Lunchtimes Change. My name is Toby Manhai and with me direct from the bowels of the Parliamentary Precinct in Wellington, New Zealand, is the Grand St Bernard, the ode on a Grecian burn, patching in on the burner phone, it's the big brain of the political economy, Kaka Substacker, and host of When the Facts Change, Bernard Hickey. Kia ora, Bernard. Kia ora, Toby. Great to have you as as my uh, warm up man, <laughs> bringing um, me into the into the stadium. Yeah, uh, tell us you're freshly out of the budget lockup. Uh, give us a flavour of the room. Was the catering? I'm I'm going to take a punt that the catering was only bread and butter. Oh no, sausage rolls. Oh this yeah, is were the really? Against budget. Okay. Yeah, yeah they okay, were great good. sausage rolls. Yeah, um, there was bread and butter, but there was some lettuce in there and the odd bit of a chicken. Um, oh, oh. It, but it wasn't spectacular. No, it was yeah. a very much a basic mm-hmm. budget designed yep. to not scare the horses, not too rich, mm-hmm. uh, but not too dry. No lamingtons. There was some lamingtons. But there wasn't much cream. Okay. Uh, but they, right. weren't, they weren't too dry, so that was okay. It's one of those budgets where if you want to get re-elected, you want to go in low, mm. not too many risks, go in hard, and become a re-election-seeking missile and uh, try and avoid getting shot down on the way there. And I think this budget sort of does that. There's some extra spending. There's a few little juicy things for the middle-class voter. And there's a couple of things that National will find uncomfortable to reverse. Mm. And and it also doesn't have a, a big hairy tax change or a, a big amount of spending that will make uh, uh, middle New Zealand with a big mortgage nervous. But it, it is certainly going to make some people happy who may be switchy type voters, median voters. Yeah. Okay. So let's wind back a bit there. And going into this budget, the government was facing a bunch of sort of uh, uh, competing competing gravities, really, I guess, and that it needed to avoid poking the bear of inflation or exacerbating inflation. But it also had to confront a cost of living crisis, the, the, the infrastructure deficit that had been both uh, worsened and perhaps more to the point, exposed by Cyclone Gabriel. And then on top of all that, the other kind of force pulling is it's an election year budget. How do you think, or maybe you can run through some of the mechanisms by which Grant Robertson and Chris Hipkins confronted that? Yeah, I mean, your your image there of Grant Robertson perched on this high wire, perhaps one of those ropes that's just above the ground where you could quite easily fall off one way or the other. That's exactly right. He had to be very careful not to seem too spendy because that's the the narrative that could really hurt uh, Labour in a year when 
most people who are short of money are even shorter of money, particularly if they've got a big mortgage. And for a lot of people who are the median voters in the suburbs, a little bit older, maybe with a mortgage, their main concern now is not to have more mortgage rate hikes. And the risk for Grant Robertson is if he pushed the spending too hard, the Reserve Bank would come back next week and say, you've just stimulated this economy, it's too hot already, I'm going to have to whack up mortgage rates to um, stop you. And that would be, I think, fatal for the government. If next week we were to see Adrian Orr step up and say, actually, sorry guys, we're going to have to put up interest rates a lot more because this government over the road was much um, too profligate then that would be game over, I think, for the government. So they've tried to to, to to walk that path, not to be too spendy, but have enough little spendy things in there just to keep people happy. And let's look at some of those those main spendy bits, which were, were targeted is, I suppose, the best way to put them. It wasn't working for families associated. It certainly wasn't the cost of living payments that backfired, really, last last time around. They went with uh, early childhood education extended f- from three down to two. They went with uh, some help on power, 100,000 more insulation, heat, heating, retrofits, uh, 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 one that I think they'll be hoping will really cut through or resonate with people across the borders, basically scrapping prescription costs, so the co-payment shift there, uh, you know, $5 down to nothing, and there was some support on transport, those sorts of things. They obviously sweated those to try and find ways that they can not look, to use your word, spendy, not look like they're stoking inflation, but still providing some support to what you spoke about before as well, which is that kind of, I'm going to use the phrase, squeeze middle. Yes, that's right. Sorry. Um, yeah. yeah, no, you, you're exactly <laughs> right. And you can see the, the targeting that's going on here. Again, um, October 14 targeting missile. It is all about uh, handing some money over to those people who are most likely to be in that target zone. And who doesn't love a two-year-old, especially when they're in early especially, childhood education? when they're in the kindergarten, yeah. That's right. And, you know, it, it's 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 good for kids. It's good for uh, mum and dad or mum and mum or dad and dad and that they can go to work and pay some taxes uh, and make a little bit of extra money to pay the mortgage. So that looks good. And for national now, they have a bit of a problem in that they, to, you know, save the money to stop the, this Labor thing, they'd have to promise to get rid of it, mm. which means that they're 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 being mean to two year olds and they're being mean to young families, which of course you don't want to do if you're trying to win power. Secondly, you've got this extra one hundred thousand uh, uh, he this extra one hundred thousand um, homes to be uh, insulated and heat pumped, mm. and the way they're doing that is essentially to lift the means testing, the income and asset test, so that someone who has a a reasonably good-looking house that's worth a lot of money can now get a government subsidy to put in a heat pump or to put in some insulation. It's a hundred thousand, which is a lot, but it's not the sort of you know one million, one point two million homes that would actually make a huge difference on the climate. Mm. But for those people who maybe haven't yet taken advantage of the subsidies, they'll be there, and that'll make feel, people feel better, particularly as we go into the winter. 
And then you've got the um, very slight amount of uh, money for people who are on paid parental leave, a little bit of a top-up for KiwiSaver. So that will please people. And then for the sort of centre-left, you know, the sort of uh, base of Labour and Green support, the $5 prescription fee removal is a really uh, sensible and effective way to give benefits to people who really, really need it and also reduce the number of calls on waiting, uh, the number of calls on A&E rooms this winter because I think actually uh, a winter collapse of our A&E departments is the biggest risk to this government going into the October 14 election mm-hmm. and anything they can do to stop people turning up at A&E, perhaps because they couldn't afford the prescription. As we know, over 130,000 people didn't collect their prescriptions in 2021-22 simply because of that $5 fee. And the research shows that this is not only good for people on low incomes who need the prescriptions, but it takes pressure off the health system. So it's a it's a win-win-win. And actually, I think the best policy to come out of this budget. When the Facts Change is brought to you in partnership with KiwiBank to help you understand the issues affecting the economy. And that's what their team of experts is here to do too. Here's KiwiBank economist Sabrina Delgado on what's happening with the labour market in Aotearoa. Our slowing economy gives way to higher unemployment, and we're seeing tightness in the labour market quickly abating. Both a recovery on the supply side, with our surging migration, boosting labour supply and loosening some very tight labour market conditions. But now a stronger narrative is coming through. As consumer demand cools, so too is the demand for labour. Firms are no longer hiring with the same gusto. Already, unemployment has started to lift from record lows, and we expect that to continue throughout 2024. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to stay up to date with detailed economic analysis and forecasts from Sabrina and other KiwiBank experts. They take big issues from both here and overseas and make them relevant to Kiwi businesses. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and, of course, past performance does not guarantee future returns. What about on tax? The the trust income tax rate has been bumped up. I think for, is it from thirty three to thirty nine, if I have that right. And that's uh, we were told no major tax changes. That probably doesn't really qualify as major. Or where is it? Somewhere in between. Well, the numbers are quite large over mm. four years. We're talking at one point one billion dollars, and I think they can get away with it politically after that big report a few weeks ago from IRD showing that the country's 311 richest families um, should have paid an extra $3 billion in taxes in uh, 2022-23. If their assets were being taxed, you mean? Yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, And a lot of the um, income was being funneled through trusts. And one of the big interesting numbers to be thrown out in the budget today was from Grant Robertson saying that 78% of the income that goes through trusts 
goes through just 5% of the trusts. Mm. So that means that the targeting of the tax increase on the 5% of people who have trusts uh, will be hard to reverse. So it's going to be hard for Christopher Luxon to stand up and say, I'm I'm here protecting those with trusts <laughs> sure. who, yeah. who are not paying enough, who are paying too much tax. Well, they're paying tax at the 39 cent rate, which is for those people earning more than $180,000. And it's pretty clear from that uh, IRD research that came out from David Parker a couple of weeks ago that there's an awful lot of money that isn't being taxed and uh, doing using the existing tax laws and existing structures to go after the trusts is uh, not only good politics, but it's good economics in that it reduces the gap between the trust rate and the top tax rate which in the past has been used as a hole to jump through. And actually, John Key and Bill English made a point when they did their big tax switch in 2011 Mm. of aligning the trust rate with the top personal tax rate. So, again, sort of manoeuvring National and Act into a corner saying, go on then, you defend the richest um, 5% of the country. Mm. Uh, yeah, and interesting in, in Christopher Luxon's response in the House, which is always a tricky one, I think, for an opposition leader to come in cold when the others have had all this material and been sitting on it for a long time. But there wasn't much, if any, going through the specifics. It was just really a cut and paste of existing attack lines. He didn't he didn't really dare go hard or anything above the sort of generality of a blowout budget. Yeah, um, you can see it was a... Um a bunch of retreads uh, put together into a into a tire that uh, didn't really hit the mark um, because you're right; it is really hard to uh, move on your feet and make calls because really you've got four or five months of election campaigning, and if you decide in the space of thirty minutes to commit your party one way or the other, <laughs> <laughs> that, that can be quite difficult. But um, but again, that's the game and. Uh, some of those um, natural reflexes you have as a politician um, show voters mm. and and your opponents exactly how good you are. Mm. I mean, there's mm. nothing more impressive than a politician who's able to think on their feet and counterpunch uh, in a really effective way without, you know, firstly going to a focus group and then Talking to Topham Garum and and and, and yep. having a chat yep. chat with um, the business roundtable or whatever, actually using your own instincts in Parliament to make the right call—that's the game. Because if you get into government as a prime minister, there's going to be a lot of those times when you do have to use your instincts and make the right calls. And when you do, there won't be anyone watching. Coming back a bit to the sort of big themes of the budget, and it was there, well, it was there in the in the title, wasn't it? Uh, support for today, building for tomorrow, you know, the, 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 the dual challenges. And you've talked uh, a lot in, in, in your writing and, and in your podcast about the infrastructure deficit. It's a very real challenge. It was laid bare in a devastating fashion for us earlier this year in, in New Zealand. Was there enough of if we've talked about uh, the the support for today, but already the building for tomorrow, did you see enough in the budget to give you confidence that that infrastructure deficit is being confronted? Not in an overarching way. Certainly, there were a couple of big ticket items that are in there, mainly around kind of order, actually. Mm. So, one of the things that I was looking for in this budget was what was the government going to do about kind of order, because the 
Kongaroa actually came to the government last year, in June last year, in a cabinet paper and said, hey, guys, uh, we've got our pipeline ready and, and working out to the end of June 2024. That was the program you gave us when you came into government. Essentially, 2018, the government told Kongaroa, hey, you need to build net uh, 14,000 houses over the next four years or so. And they went and did that. And there's been a lot of building and there's still some building to go. But by the end of June 2024, the funding was due to run out. And the big question was, what would the government do? Would they simply say to Conga, well, that's it. We've built enough houses. You can finish up now. Or what is more likely is that Conga would keep building to keep a pipeline going, but essentially sell all the houses it builds back into the private market, which wouldn't add to the net housing stock. And this is super important. Obviously, um, uh, we have a massive housing shortage. It's the core reason basically for everything. <laughs> our poverty, <laughs> our poverty, mm. um, our housing unaffordability, the reasons young Kiwis are flying off to Australia at a great rate, um, the reason that um, there's a whole bunch of landlords who even though they've had a, uh, some tax benefits removed, are still able to make money. This is one of the awful things about the Loafers Lodge fire, which is a refocused attention on this issue, mm. is that that building, which is a crappy old office building, built in the 70s and then reconfigured in the 90s as a uh, uh, a lodge, a... Um, hostel. Hostel, yeah. Um, a boarding house, basically. Yeah makes a million dollars a year in rent from 94 rooms. And that's why it was valuable. Uh, and this is the guts of it. We have extraordinarily high rents. They are the highest in the world relative to incomes. And our house prices are the highest relative to incomes. And uh, what we've just learned is that the Reserve Bank effectively intervened a month or so ago to stop house prices falling by um, relaxing some of the LVRs. And it's clear from what we've seen in the auction rooms and around the markets in the last couple of weeks that the market has bottomed out. And even though, though um, it's clearly still unaffordable, the Reserve Bank has started saying that house prices are now sustainable because um, they're unlikely to fall too much further simply because of the um, dysfunction in our market. Now, that's important because... The only way to really solve this problem is to add new supply, particularly at the bottom, you know, social housing end of the market. And Kongaroa is the main game in town. It is the it is the thing the government bet on. It is the core, you could argue, of what the government's trying to do. So what was it going to do after the end of June next year? And so it came out and added one more year of new house building, so an extra net 3,000 homes. So that keeps the track going but only for that year. And when you look at the capital spending profile for the next four years and beyond, essentially the government whacks a whole bunch of spending in there in the next two years for Kanga Aura and for reconstruction from the cyclones, and then turns off the tap. And when you look at the uh, government spending on investment in the second half of the four-year period, it really dribbles away to nothing, and that's all about making sure the net debt track which is going to peak at about 24% of GDP and then track down towards uh, 19%, 18% by the end of the period. It actually, in a longer-term forecast that Treasury included, goes down to under 10% of GDP by 2037. Mm. 
And when you think about the intergenerational problems we have, the things that only can be dealt with by hundreds of billions of dollars of investment over the next 10 to 20 years, the government's not doing that. The reason it's not doing it is that it wants to keep that net debt low and keep the size of government low down towards that 30% of GDP level. And that allows, with low public debt, for investors to have high private debt, high mortgages, to get those juicy, leveraged, tax-free capital gains. It is the rotting heart of our political economy, and it's not being cut out here. Uh, yeah, the, the, burned, the, burned, the, burned, the burned classic theme coming back to the everything <laughs> returns to. Hey, uh, on the you talked about some of those projected numbers and, and, and how close to get to the debt ceiling or whatever. What else? I mean, that's a big part of, of budget day, apart from here's what we're going to spend and how we're going to spend it. We get all these numbers from Treasury saying, here's how we see the, the near medium future. Was there anything in there that interested you? We got, for example, I think based on those numbers, they're saying probably will avoid by the skin of our teeth a recession and that we won't get those two quarters of, of, of retraction in a row. Anything, I mean, is that interesting? Anything else of note in there? Yeah, I think the, the no recession call is a is a reasonably big one because there's a bunch of other economists who think that there will be a recession. Mm. And whenever you have a really sharp tightening of monetary policy, so much higher interest rates, often that inevitably leads to a recession. And most people think there's going to be a recession in the United States. Europe seems to have avoided one also by the skin of its teeth, thanks to a warm winter. And uh, it would be unusual for New Zealand not to have a recession uh, after such a tightening of monetary policy. So that that is interesting. And the other thing that will be um, uh, a subject of controversy and interest amongst fiscal and monetary policy geeks like me, mm. and which I don't think is going to burst through to this sort of main public debate, is that give Treasury... Go. Give it a go. Let's go right go. now. <laughs> so the, the headline here is that Treasury thinks the government's budget is slightly more inflationary Mm -hmm. than it said it was in December. So slightly more inflationary in the next year or two, but slightly less inflationary over the full four-year period. So we can have an interesting debate on the um, primetime news about the first half (laughs) of the fiscal outlook and the second half of the fiscal outlook and whether or not you think the fiscal impulse numbers accurately reflect the effects of um, loose fiscal policy on monetary policy. Uh, If, you know, Adrian Orr comes out next week Mm. and says, hey, we've seen the budget, the uh, government has uh, um, blown it, they have um, gone too hard and we're going to have to whack them on the head with an interest rate hike, game over. I think it's very unlikely he'd do that. Uh, apart from anything else, Adrian Orr doesn't want to work for Nicola Willis and she doesn't want him to work for her. <laughs> <laughs> he needs to, who knows what he's going to do with our jets next week. He might just sort yeah. of warm them slightly. Are we going to? A warm yeah. towel over them just to get the turbines <laughs> turning. Who knows? Um, uh, and briefly, really, the... This is an election year. Has Grant Robertson left some cash, stuffed some cash down the mattress? I mean, there's going to be more to come before we hit election day in mid-October, isn't there? Maybe more casting in terms of future spending. What are you, what are you, what are you expecting? Yeah, I think he's emptied the 
back of the couch yeah. um, as much as he can, and he really can't promise in the election campaign any big news spending. He could promise tax increases because that would be one way to cool the economy down. Mm. And that uh, it's interesting that the tone of his language in the last couple of days coming up to the budget was, hey, I'm actually up for a debate about tax mm. in this election. Mm. Um, and, you know, there, there must have been a freezed look, a frozen look that passed across Chris Hipkins's face when he heard that. But, um, you know, there were questions about wealth. We heard that uh, we had that poll this week from uh, News Hub Research. That poll, though, Bernard, that poll was people were asked whether or not they supported a wealth tax, weren't they? And I think the issue is that when they get asked whether they want a capital gains tax, all they hear is... No matter no matter how much you say not the family home tum to tum tum it's 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 suddenly kryptonite isn't it yeah no it's a bit like um, uh, wealth tax that means oh that's taxing other people yeah. other wealthy yeah, yeah. people I'm not wealthy no. <laughs> capital gains tax <laughs> capital gains tax oh my god yeah. um, they better not be the family home yeah. uh, or or my three rental properties that's a different thing so um, I think you're right it's one of those polls where the language you use and the way it's phrased will determine the results. And uh, if you were the likes of um, uh, the Labour pollsters, uh, you would be wary of that because you'd you'd focus group that properly mm. and you would um, mm. do the do the the, the multi choice questions and the multi choice answers to zero in on what people will ex- will accept or not. I think you're right. CGT is not just a third rail; it's um, a poison pill and yep. anything else you want and to use. And we've seen it. Uh, we've seen it over and over again from Show Me the Money onwards, if not before. The the on, just quickly again on tax though. I was I was slightly surprised watching uh, Christopher Luxon's response that he hasn't spoken in the way they did more. Uh, months ago, they were more focused on on the on on the, on bracket creep, you know, which is this very real, you know, not not is it twenty ten since they were last adjusted? We've had quite a lot of inflation since then, and we've got people uh, in the middle to lower incomes being, you know, on the escalator up through the brackets through the marginal rates, and that does really, I mean, and 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 accordingly, the coffers of the public coffers swell. It does seem something that is ripe for discussion in terms of the pressures of cost of living. And every year you leave it unaddressed, um, the bill gets higher. So because it's now 13 years Mm. since the um, thresholds were indexed, to um, do a catch-up, a full catch-up now, would I understand cost $6 billion. Mm and lost uh, income tax. So you'd have to do some sort of limited catch-up. And and then you'd have to make the um, consequential decision about whether to index it. And even yeah. Bill English um, and John Key were reluctant to take that step. I mean, it's no accident that the thing didn't change between 2010 and 2017. Yeah. And it, it, it's something that everyone goes back to. But I think... Um, one of the reasons it's still in place is that um, we've got a fundamental problem here in that a significant chunk of the activity and the you know uh, momentum in the economy, the sort of critical mass of it, is not being taxed. We tax we tax PAY income, we tax uh, spending, and we also uh, you know tax corporate profits, but we're just not taxing 
uh, capital gains and uh, in particular land, and we're also not taxing inheritance. And um, the longer this goes on, the more weight you have to put onto the other forms of tax. And in this case, it's PAY income tax. And uh, no doubt the pressure will come on GST at some point as well, because this week uh, we've heard from Standard and Poor's and Moody's that they believe the aging populations of the developed world will require them to downgrade a whole bunch of developed countries to junk by 2040 or so. Now, we're we're the um, most attractive-looking horse in the knacker's yard when it comes <laughs> to debt. But still, um, when you actually have a look through the budget, and it will get no attention in the, in the papers this week or on the bulletins this week, when you look at what was the biggest growth line in government spending, mm-hmm. and not just by a little bit, by billions. You're going to say, growth, I know what you're going to say. You're going to say Exactly, exactly. And even faster than health costs. So, you know, again, this is a thing that um, we've all given up on this as a third rail as well. I wonder how many third rails you can possibly have. But, uh, you know, superannuation is the real blowout cost here. And it's one of the drivers, I think, for this uh, session we have with relatively high uh, net migration. It's the one way we can keep our population young is just to import lots of people, young people. Well, uh, before we return to those themes any further, well, there's plenty of time to do that in the months to come, whether or not it becomes an election issue or not. You're right, it's probably not. I did hear actually Hipkins and his, his his speech third up today actually had a go at the, the national NAC parties for, for wanting to meddle with superannuation, so it's certainly not coming from that mm. quarter. But... Uh, Bernard will be back, normal service on when the facts change, gone by lunchtime, we'll be back. We might even be putting this on the fold uh, the fold um, feed, what do you call it, is that right, Samuel? It could be on the real pod, I don't know, it could be anything. Um, <laughs> did we, let's, let's go out, Duncan, um, talking about Duncan, um, because did you see, Bernard, that his, in the in the lock, budget lockup, his, his name tag was printed with the spin-off, and then it said Duncan Greveson. Is that right? Absolutely, because um, uh, my good uh, partner and editor and um, graphic designer, Lynn Grieveson, mm. uh, was also in the lockup. Um, so Grieveson and Grieve, actually the E and the I are differently spelt on both, and but then, obviously a transposition. And then, uh, so that and, and not just that, Bernard, but Lynn apparently was given a spin-off badge. Did you see that? She was yeah. Lynn Greaves in the spinoff, which which does, if I'm right, that's two devastating blows for you in one, <laughs> isn't it? You've lost your colleague and you've lost yeah. your life partner. That's that's right. Although, luckily for me, um, she does uh, 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 she does appear on the spinoff regularly as a Getty Images she does. contributor. Fantastic photographer, fantastic. Um, cheers to Lynn, the true star of Budget 2023, yeah, Lynn Gribson. Yeah. Lovely to talk to you, Bernard. Thank you very much, Samuel, for making this happen. And uh, we'll all be back on our normal feeds and behaving ourselves shortly. Kakitano. <laughs> When the Facts Change was brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network, together with KiwiBank. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to find out how KiwiBank are making Kiwi better off. Okay. 
Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.